I'm Robbie Dale and this is Brilliantly Easy, Stupidly Difficult, a podcast in celebration of nine others about what we choose to do. Episode 5. There's some swearing in this episode, some middling swears soon, some really bad ones later on. Just so you know. Jean Baradin was a 14th century philosopher, but he's best known for his ass. To clarify, that's ass as in donkey. Being British, I would obviously refer to it as an arse if I meant well. His arse. Though, as it happens, such confusion is not necessary as the ass or donkey in question is simply an illustration of a paradox Baradin originated in a metaphor offered by others long after Baradin's death to satirise his views on moral determinism, which fortunately we don't have to get into right here. Instead, we simply need to imagine a donkey placed equidistant between two bales of hay. The donkey is rather hungry and being a straightforward fellow would normally choose to chomp through the source of sustenance closest to his hungry mouth. But on finding no preference in this regard, the food being literally equal distances from his gnashing teeth, or indeed any other rational preference, the donkey instead does nothing, waiting for a reason to act and, in doing so, starves to death. In the mid-14th century, Borodan himself had this to say. Should two courses be judged equal, then the will cannot break the deadlock. All it can do is to suspend judgment until the circumstances change and the right course of action is clear. Bourdain, you see, felt that choice mattered, that as sentient beings we should, in simplistic terms, weigh up the pros and cons of any alternative options and, having totted up the totals, trot towards the greater good. Indeed, like the ass he is now associated with, he was so stubborn on this point that he felt that in cases where no greater good can be found, we must do nothing. We must just wait, paralysed by indecision. It's an intellectual challenge that might not starve a real donkey, but, and this will be recognised by countless millions of us unable to choose a course of action for fear of getting it wrong, can very readily starve our souls. That's O-U-R space souls. Our souls just to be clear. Not our souls. As we've explored at length so far, I'm driven by a desire to spend my time wisely. No more wasted time, missed opportunities or dropped connections. A desire to avoid a cliched end of regret. And of course, I'm hardly unique in this concern. Warnings of lengthy regret, the kind that can come from making bad choices, have been inspiration to creative souls for centuries. From Faust and Lady Macbeth to Squeezes Up the Junction and Harry Shapin's Cats in the Cradle to the production teams of contemporary reality series who would, quite frankly, be bereft of bodies if people made better choices. In business too, we can invoke Jeff Bezos' regret minimization framework, his famous reasoning for leaving behind a life in hedge funds to pursue his dream of running an online bookstore. He knew he would never regret giving it a go, and so he passed on a lifetime of very well-paid regrets, 
for a chance at something more fulfilling. The fact it also made him the richest man in the world shouldn't distract from that decision. Yet the reality remains that most people who pursue a dream don't end up richer. We are rightly reminded that the vast majority of new business ventures fail, that only a tiny percentage of those who pursue a career as a songwriter or comedian or sports person can make a functional livelihood out of it. And so we are led to pause before committing, to ponder like the hungry donkey which choice is better, A or B, this or that, to stay or to go, and often too often in my own life and in observing others, the choice is to make no choice at all. We, in the terms of Hunter S. Thompson, lie there floating, waiting to be picked or to wait for the options to fall away so that our decision is made easy. When faced with two choices, if there isn't an obvious route, we too easily stop. We wait. We let the clock run down until there's really no choice to make. It might not always be life and death, of course, but ultimately, it kind of is. Guest seven at our Nine Others dinner has no name. I was a soldier for 20 years, of which my last 11 years were spent as an SAS officer. And having left a number of years ago, I now work in finance and got my own finance business. So initially I was, I served in a parachute battalion. And then after a while, then went and did SAS selection. Under the promise of anonymity, I was able to chat to this soldier about questions of choice, decision-making, and the fact that, in his world at least, the option to defer those decisions is non-existent. You simply have to act. In Afghanistan, uh, there was a, um, a Royal Marine, uh, both his legs blown off, and we, we were watching this through Predator coverage. And the guys desperately wanted to go and get the Taliban because I saw the Taliban actually running around holding his bloke's legs in the air. And, you know, the guys basically wanted blood. And, you know, the decision at the time was, you know, would we risk putting in a squadron's worth of blokes and a CH-47 in order to go and effectively cover this guy's legs? And, um, and we said no. And a lot of the blokes were really, really pissed off about it. But it was absolutely the right thing to do. You know, even if we went onto, onto the ground and the Chinook wasn't knocked out of the sky, we'd have got the guy's leg, you know, we'd got the guy's legs, we'd killed lots of Taliban. But, you know, those legs weren't going to regrow. And, and, you know, saying no was the right decision. Now, in terms of how the blokes reacted, you know, yes, they were pissed off because emotionally they wanted to go and do something. But actually, you know, once they'd all calmed down a bit, we realised that absolutely, absolutely was the right decision. Consequences of failure um, are ultimately death. If you were to you know, knowingly go into a gunfight without all of the cards stacked in your favour, that would then give you effectively a sort of 95% certainty of what the outcome will be. You, know, you, you just would not go in there. And actually applying that level of Risk mitigation in the financial world, again, is something that is, you know, is, is very, very transferable. You know, I, I've lost a number of my soldiers who have been killed in operations, and, you know, yes, you know, they are making, you know, you're making a decision 
intend to put both your and their lives at risk. Now, obviously, as I said, in terms of the decision-making process and in terms of what it is you're about to do, you're trying to stack the odds as heavily in your favour as you can. Because I was involved in the planning and execution of a hostage recovery operation, and there were six British soldiers who'd been held hostage, and not going to get them after negotiations had effectively fallen down um, was not an option. Um, so we, we knew we had to go and get these guys. And, and in order to do so, um, I had to come up with a plan that was very risky um, also had um, enough risk mitigation in place to actually give us at least a sort of relatively strong chance of success. We, we achieved success, we recovered the hostages. One of our blokes was killed. We had a number of our own wounded. We had two helicopters who had an awful lot of new holes put into them. But at the end of the day, it, it succeeded, but you know, not going to recover um, these six British soldiers was, was never an option. Um, and, and so we did so with a significant amount of risk. Um, and actually the way in which it was executed, it was the first time that we had ever attempted that type of assault before. And so actually, coming from an environment in which, you know, yes, it was an innovative way of performing that assault. You know, yes, we had trained to do that method um, numerous times, but it was the first time we'd ever actually done it live um, on, t on a two-way range. And I suppose the read across from that into the civilian world is actually, you know, the certain circumstances dictate that you are required to do something which has not been tried and tested before. You know, the fact that it's not been done before should not discourage you from, from trying to do it. In these kinds of military situation, you cannot pause. You cannot wait. But you also can't just throw everything up in the air and hope it lands safely. You need risk mitigation. The same is true for life. When I initially stepped away from my career to reclaim the time I felt I was wasting, I did so not by leaping naked into the abyss, but by strapping myself into a very sturdy vessel. I built up some extra savings, I drastically reduced my outgoings, I took on some freelance work, I combined my first year with time I was planning to take out anyway to get married and honeymoon and laterally take off to care for my first child. And I put a clear date in the diary. I still have one, albeit a new one, but still a clear date to go and get whatever paying work necessary if things were not going to plan. Without any of that, I wouldn't have been able to act. Indeed, having never gathered together the above, I, I never had acted. Instead, I'd waited for something to happen, discouraged, not least, by the fact I was facing uncharted territory. But of course, by not acting, by not taking that first step, nothing changed. The way you do things, the way we do things, informs the results we get. If, if you look at culture within any organisation, you know, culture is you know, the way things are done around here. 
And certainly with the, the company I'm running at the moment, you know, the, the, the culture of the business is a natural extension of my personality. Now that doesn't necessarily mean for a nanosecond that you are hiring people who are clones of you. In fact, I want exactly the opposite. You know, the, 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 the people I'm hiring, you know, have hired range massively from, you know, private equity thoroughbreds to a chairman who has got very, very good, you know, technical private equity experience, but also genuine leadership of having run something really, really large and then having sold something that was really, really large through to, you know, team members who are really, really good at running software companies and then selling those companies, um, through to someone who I hired yesterday whose job it is to kick my backside on governance. Now, you know, by, by definition, having spent 20 years as a soldier, you know, I've got some experience of some of the above, but actually hiring people who are as different to me as possible and actually prepared to challenge me um, is, is something which is actually key. And so in terms of the culture of the business, you know, I have a rule, I don't work with mates. I've tried it and it, you know, it, it, it's bitten me in the ass every single time. I work with people who I get on with, but also equally people who are prepared to challenge and ask the right question. And whilst you know, it may be a bit painful being challenged, actually, when you step back and think about it, you know, they are doing so for the right reason. You know, when people think about the military, they think about discipline, they think about you know, people looking and dressing very smartly and also sort of sergeant majors running around being very, very shouty. That is probably its sort of lowest and sort of least understood representation. The real point about discipline is actually is ultimately self-discipline. You know, coming from an organisation where actually people don't really mind what it is you look like, you know, what you're wearing. What they do mind is that what's on, you know, what's going on underneath the clothes is absolutely 100% self-disciplined. And that, I think, is, you know, is key. You, know, you can have a bunch of blokes in suits and ties who, you know, may sit in a bank, but, you know, who, who look the part. But actually, you know, there's, you know, they could, they could be sort of treading water to all intents and purposes. And so actually it's having the ability, you know, it, it's self-discipline, which is, which is key. And another thing is something that, I love this piece of advice. It's a kind of personal call to arms, a rallying cry for personal responsibility. What we do matters. What we choose to do matters. Nobody else is going to make those choices for us. Yeah, I suppose the only final thing is, is, is that of courage. Having the guts to try where you know, things might not succeed. One of the key issues with you know, society in the UK is that is that of the genuine learning environment. And people, um, you know, people in the US actually, if you set up a business and it fails in the US, there is no stigma attached to that because they've tried. Whereas in the UK, going back to your point about streamlining mediocrity, your spirit that has a go, the uh, the courage to try something different or has not been done before is something that is almost is almost frowned upon, and if you look at some of the sort of the characters like you know, Richard Branson, uh, Dyson, 
Yeah, they, they've got a few, yeah, within them they've got a few failures on the board. But actually they've also achieved some, um, some stellar success. How have they achieved that success? Well, actually both by being very capable, but also by learning from their failures and their mistakes. And, and that, I think, is something that, um, is something that actually, you know, both the military and also civilian life is that people need to become a lot, a lot better at. You know, the definition of madness is to keep doing the same thing that isn't working. Burridan's ass starved to death because he was unable to make a decision. But of course, that's a minimalist philosophical metaphor, whereby the donkey is merely concerned with proximity as a guide to making a rational decision. We in our gungy, speckled, shuddering lives have far more to contemplate, but just as much reason to defer action. Amongst the practical advice there, however, I think the key for our soldier is that he knows what he's looking for. He knows what he needs to achieve. It's true on deployment, and he's made it true in his civilian life. And when you know what you're looking for in terms of success, when you know what your goal is, then you can make specific plans to get there, with reasonable measures to mitigate the risks. It's a simple case of what gets measured gets done. The cliche but generally fair assessment that we march after the thing that will let us tick a box. We do it for parents, we do it for bosses, and we sometimes do it for ourselves. But if we're measuring something unhealthy, then we'll deliver unhealthy habits. Bhutan, the Buddhist kingdom on the edge of the Himalayas, has, for example, chosen to pursue gross national happiness as an indicator of success for the nation, rather than GDP, gross domestic product, a purely monetary measure used, well, everywhere else. Are the people of Bhutan happier than everyone else? No, not really. And there's issues with ethnic cleansing, human rights abuse and serious poverty. But it's a starting point. It's a choice. And assuming you're not planning to ethnically cleanse your living quarters or commit human rights atrocities at work, then I reckon we should all try to be a little bit more Bhutan. The question as ever, however, is what do you measure? I struggled with this in the very first episode of this series and... The answer, or at least the approach that unlocked the answer, was to consider what things were non-negotiable, what was simply not an option, and therefore what was. We've just heard it's also a key aspect of thinking in the SAS, so that'll do me. Because if we have clarity on what we're measuring, what's non-negotiable, then we can start to make choices and take risks, calculated, mitigated risks, that get us closer to ticking that box. Or to put it another way, we need to work out what we really care about and what we're happy to let fill our time. On which note, guest eight, our penultimate guest, is Amy Charlotte Keane. And she's very clear on this. I think there's a real challenge. Ah, oh, but it's age old is that some people, a, a large proportion of society has a, a, an existence which is far too easy, which is as developed as it could possibly get. Mm. So when you have that portion of society whose lives are fucking wonderful and easy and privileged and all that stuff, it's very hard for anything to change. 
because you you we don't need any more revolutions in theory life is you know life is um kind of seamless enough now and so when you have those groups of people that fucking will like resist change as much as they possibly can because they've got a nice life that's when society is broken because they you know britain is a perfect example of that you know the whole many not the few um kind of soundbite there's so many people in britain male and female that have fucking lovely lives really privileged rich affluent like amazing lives why the fuck would they want anything to change and i think those groups of people are getting that's the size of that group is getting bigger and bigger and bigger um and that's why apathy you know apathy amongst so many people for any kind of progress for others is the reason why it's broken amy's passion for progress gave rise to a book published at the end of 2018 with a title you're not going to forget easily the little girl who gave zero fucks and it's kind of a new format so it's a format that strangely people some people have found it quite hard to get their heads around because it's presented like a children's book it's illustrated it's got beautiful illustrations it's written in verse it's written like a fairy tale but obviously it has the word fucks in the title Mm -hmm. um that's the only swear word in it um and i've described it as uh an ode to everyday bravery. So it's kind of like a handbook. So Glamour magazine, I think, called it a feminist handbook. Um, <clears throat> but it's not a novelty. It's not a novelty text. Right. Um, it's uh, intended to be something that helps a lot of people in their day-to-day lives be a little bit braver. And when I say brave, that doesn't mean like starting your own business. It doesn't always mean starting your own business. It doesn't mean like, you know, going to war. Yeah. Uh, being brave can be anything from just not listening to negative stuff that people say, not taking it on board, calling people out when they might say something nasty or you know harmful, um, or it could be something as simple as just being yourself, which is fucking difficult actually, yeah. um, particularly if you're a woman. Unfortunately, you expect this to be read by five-year-olds, right? If the parents are okay with it, yes, yeah. absolutely. My, um, I guess, I suppose it's a manifesto of sorts, or just maybe like a, a hope, is that language evolves. You know, Shakespeare used the word cunt in one of his plays, and it was okay. Um, but loads of words that we would consider to be utterly offensive were used in Shakespeare. You know, language changes. Um, and my hope is that... The word fuck, which was actually invented by 16th century German monks. Um, And it didn't really have sexual connotations back then. It's just changed over time. Mm. Uh, Words like fuck are used by little girls as like an act of rebellion or defiance. You know, no one should tell me what to say. That's disgusting. As long as I'm not hurting anyone. Um, And instead, they they, they stop using words like ugly weird stupid you know words powered by you know racial prejudice and all that kind of stuff so i have always written um i've worked in media for like 15 years um and uh used to work in pr so i wrote loads i used to write lots of common pieces and stuff i had a column in campaign magazine i've written for the guardian but it was all 
wanky industry stuff about engagement and brave brands and all that jazz um, and I started to realise that that was utterly soulless so I started to write stories and poems and stuff I was getting those published cool. and obviously that increased my confidence um, and the reason why I wrote it um, and I always say it's really important for me to be honest because I can't make money out of essentially weak women buying my book unless I'm going to be totally honest about why my weaknesses as well um I think it was about five years ago right and I, I suppose it kind of coincided with the rise of fourth wave feminism which has been powered by social media yeah. um I started to get angry about five years ago I started to get angry and I still haven't stopped and I started to get angry because um I think everyday sexism had just started to gain traction as a Twitter account. Yeah. And once you see, you start to see those things and you start to see how people are treated badly and everyday sexism, everyday sexism occurs, you cannot unsee it. And at the time, <clears throat> I've had quite, I was, I've been sexually harassed in the, you know, last decade. I've been, um, undermined greatly by male co co-workers i moved to singapore i think it was about four years ago and um had an utter crisis of confidence um because of a variety of different reasons which i didn't believe to be <clears throat> my fault mm. um and they were related to how i looked and how i was treated and how i saw myself and all of those things i worked in an environment that was very male and very sexist i mean apac does suffer more from sexism and hierarchy than some other yeah. regions um and uh after a while, I was just, I was at an all-time low and actually developed a little addiction to Xanax, which is, which I would not recommend, but it's very easy to access in Singapore. <laughs> um, anyway, so it got to that point um, where I was like, fuck, I need to, I need to do something about this. And the only way, the only way that I've ever been able to kind of sort my head out is by writing stuff down and I didn't know there's a thing called like manifestation or visualization where okay, you kind yeah. of you put people create boards and they say this is what I want my future yeah, to like be Olympic athletes and things yeah. Do it or, yeah yeah absolutely. it's becoming quite popular anyway so essentially I decided to manifest uh via this book the little girl who gave zero fucks how I wanted to be which was to care less so about all of these yeah, yeah but then um at that time I have three nieces um, and they're five years apart so one's 15 one's 10 and one's five um, and I would listen to what they said about their friends bullying them and I'd hear them say words like fat and I'd hear them like obsess over how they looked and I was like oh fucking hell like if someone you know it's just not fair that girls grow up kind of having all this pressure on them so I decided to write something that I thought might help as well a lot of people have told me that the, the book, the Zero Fox book, has, has helped them a bit. So what I've started to do is go to schools. I've started in Essex, because that's where I'm from, um, and talk about self-esteem self and anxiety and all the different things, thinking too much. Um, and is that to girls and boys? Boys are sometimes, yeah, boys are in the classes, because yeah. it's all about, particularly with, you know, um, state schools, I think confidence is an issue across the board, um, so, but I'm not allowed to use the word fuck, so I use the word yucks instead. I went to a school recently, um, and we do this exercise where I say, you know, for some reason, it's considered a really bad thing to love yourself, so if we say, oh god, she really loves herself, it's, it's 
considered yeah. a negative. Sure. So I say to people, you know, it's actually the most amazing thing in the world to love yourself. So we're going to do an exercise where we do that. And I say, you know, I work in advertising, so I want every single person in the room to think of the best thing about themselves and draw a poster, you know. Um, and I say, you know, for me... I talk a lot, which is why podcasts are so great. And my poster would be, you know, Amy Charlotte Keane filling awkward silences since, you know, for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, and what's really sad is that half the class won't be able to do it. Um, mostly girls, they just, they get this, they get this kind of paralysis because they don't want to, they don't want to, come across as arrogant and they don't want to come you know they don't want people to think they love themselves they don't want to brag um and that really makes me sad uh so i'll have to go around the class and say well no are you like are you a good friend are you good at running and eventually you get everyone amy's choice was to harness her anger to turn it into a searing text that could be given to little girls and little boys and bigger girls and bigger boys as a manifesto as an ode to everyday bravery, as she calls it. And you can hear from her story that it's something she's effervescently passionate about. And in finding her vessel, the little girl who gave zero fucks, she sets out very clearly what aspects of a life well lived are non-negotiable for her. What changes in the world she's measuring to see progress. And with such clarity, it's been much easier for Amy to turn that anger into positive outcomes. A book, school visits, and well, there's even a musical in the works, I'm told. All choices she's been able to make to get her message out. To live a life true to her beliefs and hopes for a better world. Not she gives a fuck what I think, of course. And rightly so. So what do an SAS soldier and a feminist author have in common? Well, both have achieved their aims. Both have got to where they need to be by identifying a target and taking steps to hit it. It is, I realise, as I digest my conversations from this virtual dinner, what all our guests have had in common. And it further reminds me of the transformative power of visualising success used commonly by sports stars, a kind of neuropsychological technique that many swear by to help them achieve their goals. Picture it, literally, and then you have a target to aim for. This used to terrify me. For years and years, as I outlined in the first episode, I floated with no real idea of where I wanted to go. And it took real application, real time and effort to work out what it was I wanted to put my energy towards. To unlock the details of what it was in amongst all the noise that I found truly fulfilling. Some have their calling from an early age. Some work their way towards it through a labyrinth of experience. But the thing that matters, the thing that draws a line under it every single time, they acted. Because it may be easier to act when you have a target to aim for, but it's also much easier to find that target if you're actually out looking for it. Or, to put it another way and end where we started with the words of a donkey, A.A. Milne's Eeyore in this case, I must be good for something, but then I could be wrong. I guess all I can do is carry on.
Thank you to our anonymous soldier and Amy for their time. As well as the little girl who gave zero fucks, Amy has just published a collection of poetry, House of Weeds. Links to both can be found in the show notes. Next time we're wrapping up with a man who gave his kidney to a total stranger and a final special guest. Well, I think they are anyway. I hope you'll join us. Brilliantly Easy, Stupidly Difficult is a podcast for the Nine Others Network. You can find the credits and anything else you need to know at nineothers.com slash podcast. <laughs>